0: Hello and welcome to the Phuket Stories Podcast. I'm your moderator, Saigon Steve. On this special podcast episode, we'll talk with military personnel who were stationed in Vietnam and talk with them about their extraordinary experiences. This podcast is pre-recorded but you're invited to participate on future podcasts by emailing your contact information to Stories at gmail.com That's Stories at gmail.com So let's get started with today's special guests. Our special guests today are Jan Scruggs and Bill Shugerts, who served in the Vietnam War. Jan Scruggs conceived the idea of building a memorial to Vietnam veterans and founded the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, which built the wall in Washington, D.C. The wall, as it is known, is visited by over five million persons yearly. Bill Shugerts Served in Vietnam with the 23rd Infantry Division AmeriCal. He was a battalion transportation officer running resupply convoys to forward fire bases throughout I Corps. Here now is Jan Scruggs to begin the conversation.
1: This is Jan Scruggs. I want to give my appreciation to Saigon Steve. I'm here to interview Mr. Bill Shugarts. Bill, you've been selected among the many applicants for this uh, podcast because you are such a well-rounded individual, and uh, you're a photographer, a very excellent photographer. You're a volunteer. You've been through all the training. You're a volunteer at the United States Army Museum, which just opened. We want to hear a little bit about that. You've been a volunteer at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial for how many years? Fourteen, Jim. So, You've had so many great experiences. Let's start with the dog tags. You sent me pictures of dog tags yesterday. The dog tag of your your grandfather from World War I, and they were round then, little round dog tags. Grand, a, a dog tag from your father. So you have a legacy of service in your family. Tell me a little bit about where did you grow up, and, and what was your family situation like?
2: Yeah, Jan. Thank you. It's a it's an honor to be uh, able to join you and Steve. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I was uh, I'm the oldest of a large family of five kids. And uh, you're right. My grandfather served in World War II. He was a doughboy, and his dog tag is a, a circular disc. And then my dad was uh, served in World War II. It was sort of expected that we would serve, but it was not required. So it was a model or an example. I had a choice, like we all did in the 60s. I was uh, in college and uh, went to a small little liberal arts college in Ohio, and they had no ROTC, and the Vietnam War was coming on. And I met a lady, and uh, we got married. We were college sweethearts, and her her dad was a, a Quaker pacifist. So he was uh, against the war, and he did things against the war. And I explained to him that I had uh, a choice here. I could either wait to be drafted or enlist or uh, go to Canada. (laughs) And uh, I said, in my family, uh, when you're called to serve, you serve. And I said, my example was my grandfather and my dad and and me. So I had no compunction not to to try that. So I enlisted after graduating. I graduated uh, with a business degree in 1967 and then, went to uh, the Air Force. I wanted to join the Air Force. I wanted to be a pilot. And uh, I passed intelligence stuff, flunked the physical because of a a bad eye. And so then I thought, oh, what am I going to do now? So I went to the Navy. I thought, well, I'll be a Navy pilot. That looks sexy. So same thing happened. They called me out. They said, well, you've got good intelligence, but you can't fly because your eyes aren't any good. So then I went to the Army. My model, again, was my dad, who was transportation in World War II, And He was a railroader. He ran rail convoys from uh, Tehran, Iran, which is ironic now. He was in the Persian command in 1942-43, and they'd run these convoys, train convoys, of lend lease up to the Soviet front to support the Soviets. So anyway, having said all that, that was sort of my model, and uh, I joined the Army because they had what was called a delayed enlistment program, and they uh, said if you made it through basic AIT and OCS that they would guarantee you your branch. Now, this is in the days when, you know, Jan, we didn't have contracts then, and uh, I was surprised that it actually worked. So I wound up getting my branch, and then I wound up getting trained uh, in that, and then uh, sent to Vietnam, uh, and I was actually working in my, my MOS. So it, it, it actually all worked out, um, although I almost got killed a couple times and decided that I wasn't going to do this for a career, so
1: I got out. Tell me uh, what it's like. You're running convoys. It looks like, you know, these. what do you have, like 40 or 50 trucks in a convoy, and you're going yeah. from place to place, and you're, you're kind of a slow-moving target, aren't you, for yep. Yep. an organized group, maybe 20 guys with rocket grenades and rifles? <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: Did you well, see that
1: sort of thing happen? Yeah, absolutely. I was there in
2: 6970. So um, it was relatively safe to run truck convoys up and down Highway 1. So this was all the way from, you know, the DMZ all the way down to Saigon if you wanted to, to try that. But I was in I-Corps, so we, the southernmost point of our area of operation, the AO, was Quinyon. And the northernmost point for our AO was uh, Da Nang. And so we would run up and down Highway 1 every day, and we ran them every day, uh, Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays, every day. And they, when I was there, they were relatively safe because uh, the war had been going on for two or three years, and, uh, you know, the infantry had already cleared all that out, and, uh, you know, you secured different compounds and different bases, and so... That was to you, infantry, Jan, that, you know, we were sort of the rear area. So, uh, having said that, I was based in Chulai, and uh, we shared the AO with uh, the 101st, the Americal, and the 3rd Marines. And the Marines had been there since the beginning in 65. So, our job was was to support these fire bases. The reality was is that many of them, I and you know, you were in, in, in some of these, and... Uh, You you had to worry about terrain, weather, the enemy, all of that. And uh, they relied on us. And we were the major support battalion for the whole division. And the division was cobbled together through the war. It was reactivated from World War II, the Americal. And uh, it had both distinction and it also had some bad stuff. So uh, anyway, having said that, uh, the job really was, was, all the classifications that you needed to, to support the, the infantry. And you had to have that stuff there when they needed it. I mean, you know, from uh, fuel oil to run the choppers to the vehicles, to the everything, and then you had to resupply everything. So, you know, you, you infantry grunts lived off of what you got and we tried to do the best we could. In running the tactical convoys, every three, four days, we would run west to the fire bases LZ Center, LZ Professional, LZ West—I I can go on and on and on. There were easily eight or ten of these. And if you couldn't reach him by trucks, you'd you'd reach him—you'd uh, hook hook out stuff in choppers and Chinooks and uh, sometimes Huey resupplies. But I, I I managed all that for the for the uh, battalion, and and we were the support element for the whole division. So. I didn't realize how big of a job it was, and I was only a first lieutenant, So, uh, but my job was twofold. Was one was to plan all that, and then they didn't have enough captains and majors, so I reported to a uh, battalion commander, a lieutenant colonel, and uh, it was odd because I had a staff of two, uh, a sergeant and a specialist and me, and uh, we did this, so in addition to to planning it, then I would ride uh, with the Colonel and we'd do command and control over the convoys. And uh, I got uh, shot down once and I'm not sure it was mechanical failure or engine failure, but we crashed. And thankfully, uh, chopper pilots were taught on how to auto rotate these choppers. So they controlled it. And when we landed, we broke the skids, but and then we rolled a bit, but it, we, we, we landed upright. So, you know, I didn't get killed. But uh, yeah, the infantry would minesweep the roads in the morning. Uh, They'd be out there two or three days ahead. Uh, They would do patrols. Uh, We would run, oh, 60 vehicles many times in serials of three, so you'd take 60 vehicles and split them into columns of 20. And the vehicles, you counted everything that had wheels, such as uh, a low boy, an APC, a tank, Um, you know any kind of thing and then any unit that that wanted to go on the convoy all they had to do was go to the planning meeting and the briefing and then show up with their vehicle and then and they would get in the columns and we would run them out to these fire bases
1: well that's a a very good description of exactly what you did in Vietnam let's fast forward to uh, I guess it was 2004 Well, you know, we established a significant program over there, uh, Project Renew, because of the uh, ongoing landmine casualties, particularly from these uh, bomblets that were dropped, these cluster cluster munitions. So a lot of people were getting hurt and killed, and and there were economic consequences as well. Anyway, it was something I felt
2: that I had to do.
1: This was really on my heart. Because I had, yeah. had met some of the kids who had been playing with these things and gotten their arms blown off. So we were able to actually drop the uh, the, the casualties to uh, almost nothing over a period of 10 or 15 years. by yeah. Behavior modification by showing uh, the kids uh, bringing in a, a, a Catholic priest and a Buddhist priest, having them do some prayers and passing out little wooden replicas of these dangerous things. So they got the message and changed their behaviors. Anyway, I kind of moved on from that in 2010, put efforts into other things. And you have so many things on your plate. I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what is a couple of experiences you had as a volunteer at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial that were significant?
2: Wow. A good question.
1: Um, there's a little book
2: called Wall Magic, and uh, we did this in 214. and uh, you had moved on, and I had asked the uh, folks at the VVMF, I said, there's too many um, unique, one-of-a-kind conversations that occur at the wall, and uh, this is uh, history. And uh, they trusted me, and we published a little little booklet, like you used to do, those little booklets. Yeah, sure. So yeah, this is a collection of stories and three of my stories are my go-to stories, but uh, they're in the book. And, uh, I actually make talks. I've done talks over the last 10 years, uh, a couple, a year, um, to, uh, Wakefield high school students and some other things like that. But, uh, I, the stories I use are my, my go-to three stories, but one specifically was, was, uh, one morning, the, uh, a gentleman showed up, and he had a a boonie hat on, Jim, like we we're used to, and he had a peace belt buckle on, and he had a a shirt that was tie dyed back in the '60s, of the peace insignias all over him, and he was there. It was like a Tuesday, and uh, you know, in the uh, spring, and no one was around. It was pre uh, tourist season, and I'm in my yellow uniform anyway. He comes up to me, and he's got a an arm that's got a hook on it. And when I looked at his arm, it had, uh, on the artificial arm, it had the American flag and God bless America and some of his things. So anyway, uh, he said to me, do you work here? I said, yes. And he said, uh, what happens to the stuff that, that we leave here at the wall? And I said, well, it gets picked up by we volunteers or the um, park rangers and or and it goes to the archival collection over in Maryland. And I said, it's, it's cataloged and registered and, maintained and I said uh, that's the Vietnam Veterans Memorial fund's commitment and uh, he said okay so uh, I walked away he walked away and then he comes up and he said well I want to leave something and I said uh, oh okay he said I'd like to leave my arm <laughs> uh, and oh, I, no. I yeah and I was startled I said uh, I, excuse me I don't understand he said well I'd like to leave this uh, this artificial arm And uh, he said, I don't need it anymore. And uh, I said, okay. He said, well, what will happen to it? I said, well, it'll go in the collection. So he did. He took off his arm, and then he had two pieces of paper, Jan, that had the story of his brother, who was combat wounded in Vietnam as well, who died, and uh, he said, I want to leave those stories. So he took those two pieces of paper put it inside his artificial arm and left his artificial arm and and walked away. And before I walked away, I said to him, would you mind? And I'm a camera guy, like you mentioned. I have cameras with me most of the time. And I said, uh, would you mind if I took your picture? He said, no, that would be fine. So I took his picture and then I gave him my little card, you know, uh, Bill Sugar's uh, wall volunteer of National Park Service, the little card I have and then uh anyway the bottom line was is that he uh gave me his card and his little card says peace man Jen, uh rolling thunder the 30th edition of rolling thunder magazine has that article in it that's one of one of three stories uh, the other one was was meeting meeting the uh <laughs> that was funny too that was meeting meeting Dow, D A O is the way you say his name, Dow and Dow meant something, and uh, I met Dow at the wall doing what I was doing and uh Dow had come up to me and wanted to know if I was a soldier and I said yes and he said he was too. And obviously he was Vietnamese and he had a tie and coat on and he had his associate with him and He wanted to know, you know, how the memorial worked and uh, wanted to let me know that he was a soldier, too. So I said to him innocently, uh, oh, you were a a soldier in Vietnam? He said, yes. And I said, oh, what Arvin unit were you with? And he smiled and he said, no, I wasn't Arvin. I was VC. (laughs) And uh, and I remember sending you an email saying, I met this guy and he's VC. But it startled me. I didn't know what to say. And so uh, we just traded nice human conversation, and uh, anyway, the bottom line was: is he said, "Well, I said, well, when were you uh, a soldier?" He said, "1971," and he said, "I was shot." He said, "I was in a battle and I got shot." And I said to him, "Oh, I said, well, I was home by then." And he wanted to know if I was the one that shot him, and I said, "No, I was home by then." So that was sort of funny. Well, one thing led to another, and uh, he's a photographer, and he is a world-class photographer in retirement and uh, he's been uh, doing photography for all oh, the last 15-20 years mm-hmm. and we've become friends and uh, we we trade stuff on facebook uh when i took the delegation back to vietnam in two fifteen, i said to the folks in the delegation i said well there's a fellow that lives here in hanoi and i said i'd like him to join our our group for dinner, and here's his background. Do you have any problems with that? And they did not at all. But uh, I remember what you said, because you emailed me back, Jan, and said, I said, well, I think there's a, a VC convention going on here in D.C. And uh,
1: and you said to me, well, you're comrades now. The interesting thing about the Vietnamese mind is they do not get stuck in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the way the Americans and the Europeans do, they are always kind of they look towards the future.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh,
1: the country of Vietnam has been doing fairly well. It's turned into a real vacation paradise, uh, some excellent golf courses and yep. uh, yeah, beaches. I mean, talk about beaches. You've got like 250 miles of beaches uh, or more. And a fun place for you know average tourists to go. Sure. And, uh, sure. Yeah, Australians. You see them all over the place. They got their backpack, and you know they've been there for a month. And <laughs> it's nice. Well, I want to thank you for your your service to our country, and certainly in the Vietnam War, but uh, especially your service at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and the U.S. Army Museum. And you do so many good things in your life. You're even involved with the church in Kenya. And uh, you, you do good things, and you're a good example for people of a, a well-balanced individual. So uh, thank you there, Bill shugarts and keep up the good work. And now Saigon Steve has a question or two.
0: Well, Bill shugarts I have a couple of questions for you. First of all, looking into your background, you started out as an enlisted man, and driving tanks, I think. Isn't that what it says here? Uh, you were a tank driver back in the day?
2: Yes, sir. <laughs> I was th- a pretty good tank driver. <laughs> well, what is that like? <laughs> it was fun, uh, Steve. It was fun. Uh, it, it's the most fun I ever had in the Army, bar, bar anything, was in 1968 in uh, AIT at Fort Knox, Kentucky, being a tanker. The fun part was this. we were out on a a firing exercise, so we did we learned how to drive these machines. We learned how to fire them. And this was an m forty eight tank and then an m sixty tank. So I was trained on both of them. And what's ironic is is the Army Museum has two tanks in it. One's a they have two tanks and a Bradley fighting vehicle. So uh, I can tell you about the the World War One tank, it's called an f t seventeen and interestingly enough, it was built by the Renault Car Company. So it was used in World War One, and then in World War Two, you know, the famous uh, Sherman tank. And uh, and then you go into the modern technology, which is the Bradley fighting vehicle now, and, and then they've got the, the Strikers and a bunch of other stuff. But anyway, uh, Steve, it was enjoyable, and uh, I got the fire. I'll never forget this, because we were at night firing exercise Fort Knox, and you've got, uh, oh, 12 tanks in a row, and you're firing a shot, so it's solid shot, and there's a uh, target that's out, oh, so many hundreds of yards, and the target's on a, a track, a trolley track-like, and the target moves, and you've got to fire this tank. Well, you've got a crew of four, so you've all got a job to do, and if you're not coordinated... Not only do you not fire the thing on time, it just doesn't work. So we got the fire. Uh, you do the rotation, and I got to fire 24 rounds in a row. And I happened to land as the, oh, the, the uh, gunner. So I was the gunner uh, for, for my position at that time. But uh, it, was, it was fun. It was, it was fun. And then Eisenhower died while I was there as an officer later on after OCS, and they brought out the tanks, put them on the parade grounds, and I'll never forget this. They gave him a twenty-one gun salute for President Eisenhower uh, with tanks. And it was just awesome,
0: incredible. You know, people who are veterans, they never talk about their commendations and their medals. But you got three bronze stars. Tell us about that.
2: Well, I, I I don't talk about it much, and I I think a lot of veterans really really don't. It was a function of um, circumstances. So the first one I got was, uh, you know, just doing my job. And then the second one was a, an operation that I did in the latter part of my tour. So what they were doing, it, was, um, it wasn't it Lomsom 719, but it was an operation that was like that. And it was in August, July, August of 1970. And they were reopening up a special forces base over on the Laotian border. And uh, my job was was to set up a small little base camp to to use as a logistical supply point to the infantry, uh, our infantry divisions and, uh, well, our battalions and then, uh, you know, the infantry, all of them that were out there. So anyway, so that, that's what I did, and that, that was that. And then the third thing was... was uh, when I almost got killed, and the colonel, he said to me that I sort of qualified for an air medal, but he said, it, it, it's going to look silly, because you're a first lieutenant, you're a transportation officer, you're really not an infantry grunt, you've done all this flying, and you qualify, you've done enough hours, but he said, they're not going to let that go through, and I, you know, to be honest with you, Steve, I didn't care, it was uh, I didn't care. Honestly, I didn't care about, I, I about medals. I, I, I didn't care about them then, and I, I don't so much now. And uh, so, anyway, he said to me, "Well, I'm going to give you another bronze star," and I said, "Okay." So it didn't mean much to me, and I guess it means it means something to you if you stay in as a career. And uh, my choice was was to to stay in as a career or or go on with my other stuff. is what which is what I did, and when he counseled me and when they have that junior officer counseling and my colonel was pretty good. It was, uh, I worked for three colonels in the tour, but the one that, that had to counsel me when I was ready to leave, he said to me, we don't want all you junior officers. Uh, you know, we want the best ones. And, uh, he said, what are you going to do now? And I said, I don't know. I'd like to go to graduate school. Well, back then in, in 1970, 71, they didn't have anywhere near the programs they have now. So, uh, I said, well, what do I do if I go to captain's course? And he said, well, if the war's still going on, you come on back over here. And I thought, well, no, wait a minute. I've gotten uh, almost got killed twice, and I, I, I don't want to do that anymore. So, so I got out. So that, that's it.
0: you were an enlisted man, and you were an officer. You know, that's two different kinds of career fields in the military. What's it like starting out enlisted and then becoming an officer?
2: Uh, Steve, that's a good question. Uh, starting out as an enlisted man, you learn pretty quickly that uh, you've got to to trust the non-coms and you've got to listen. One of the things that you learn also is is that you have that viewpoint as to okay, uh, what are we doing here? Why are we doing it? And those kinds of things. As you go to OCS and become an officer, there's really three ways you become an officer. So you you do it. At, you know, a West Point graduate that comes out of out of out of that training. Or ROTC programs, which comes out of universities, and you know, is a a training program too, and then OCSS. Um, But I'm I'm prejudiced. Uh, I've been told, and I I believe this sincerely in my own experience. The best officers, bar none, are the ones that have come up through the ranks. They know the reality, and they know. Uh, you know, that you, you need to, in order to be an effective officer, you've got to figure out how to lead from the front, and you've got to be able to 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 have that understanding. One of the things that's interesting is is that, yeah, the ROTC officer gets that eventually. The West Point officer are incredibly well-trained, but they've got a, a, a hubris that, that they need knocked away to be effective. Over the long haul... You you figure it out pretty quickly. You're you're as an enlisted guy and also as an officer. The people that run your your army are your non-coms, and you you better learn from your non because they are they they are the the bread and butter of the of the forces. And it it's not just the army; it's a, it's any service.
0: Bill Sugertz, thank you for your service. Well, that wraps up another special episode of Foo Cat Stories. If you'd like to participate in a future Foo Cat Stories podcast, email your contact information to FooCatStories at gmail.com. That's FooCatStories at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Foo Cat Stories podcast. I'm Saigon Steve.